Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maine Historical Society. Our podcasts explore connections between local, state, and national history and share diverse Maine stories to enrich life in contemporary Maine. In its original format, this program featured photographs and slides that you may hear the speaker refer to. While a recording with those images is not currently available, we feel the content of this program was still worth sharing in an audio-only format. If you have questions about the content of this program, please email programs at mainhistory.org. To learn more about our programming, please visit us online at www.mainhistory.org forward slash programs. All right, folks, uh, thanks so much for being with us this evening. I'm Kathleen Newman, uh, the Curator of Education and Public Programs here at Maine Historical Society. So with us tonight uh, is Timothy Sherman uh, to discuss Tales and a Tale and in the return of Elizabeth Oak Smith to literary history. We're going to get underway in just a moment, but I just want to take uh, a moment as we start the program to... Remember that Maine Historical Society recognizes that what is currently referred to as Maine is Wabanaki homelands, a place that the Wabanaki people have stewarded for over 13,000 years. And wherever we are in Maine, we are on Wabanaki homelands. We recognize the inherent sovereignty of the Abenaki, Maliseet, Mi'kmaq, Passamaquoddy, and Penobscot nations, within these lands and waters. Understanding Wabanaki history is vital to understanding Maine, and we are committed uh, to helping provide education about this history through partnerships with Wabanaki people. Our speaker this evening, Timothy Sherman, is a professor and chair of English and Linguistics at Northeastern Illinois University. A graduate of Dartmouth College and Duke University, his career-long recovery of the life and work of Elizabeth Oak Smith began in 1991 and continues to the present day. He is the founder and president of the Elizabeth Oak Smith Society and editor of the most comprehensive and current collection of her work at oaks-smith.org and is the editor of Elizabeth Oak Smith Selected Writings, Volume 1, Emergence and Fame, 1831 to 1849. Is that the book you've got? We've got copies available here this evening for anyone who's interested. Uh, so please uh, join me in welcoming Timothy Sherman. Thank you. So um, yeah, this, I'm so happy to be here. I was just talking to some folks about uh, how many times I've been back and, and how I've appreciated the uh, camaraderie here and uh, in, in our search to um, bring uh, figures of Portland history back to life. Um, so I, um, I tried to keep this to half an hour, but I wasn't successful. It's about 41, 42 minutes. And, you know, maybe if I mumble about slides, it'll become 45. But, hey, I hope to um, keep things moving. Uh, so I'd like to start, if I could, with um, a prop for many of you, a familiar quotation from Henry David Thoreau's Walden. Let us settle ourselves and work and wedge our feet downward 
through the mud and slush of opinion and prejudice and tradition and delusion and appearance, mm -hmm. through poetry and philosophy and religion, till we come to a hard bottom and rocks in place, which can, we can call reality and say, this is, and no mistake. Mm -hmm. That is uh, 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 a guidepost for our, the whole talk. Um, so tonight I've come not to tell you tales, but to interrogate them, even their delusion and appearance in Thoreau's terms. The kind of tales we call tall tales nearly always involve casual violence. And I want to begin by acknowledging that sort of violence in my title for this talk, which refers to literary history in what seems to be a dangerously unguarded way. The word history is a tall tale, isn't it? With an unasked question at its center, whose story to return a white woman writer like Oaksmith to something blandly called literary history quiet, quietly seems to assume, even to assert, a history limited to white and incidentally male settler history, which is to start with a premise that is woefully misleading. To establish an honest literary or cultural history, or the true place of any of our writers within it, we first need to acknowledge the material fact that our history and our ways have disrupted and have for some hundreds of years displaced the thousands of years of history and ways of the people whose place we now occupy. Here, the Abenaki and Wabanaki, whose lands were never ceded to white settlers but forcibly taken, and whose inherent sovereignty needs to be defended. Concentrating tonight on the recovery of a figure lost in white settler history, a woman who attempted at points throughout her career to raise her culture's awareness of the effects of its ideological and institutionalized violence against Native Americans, but also undeniably participated in that violence. I will argue for what may serve as a logic of reparation. Becoming more aware of the material bases of our culture, of testing and revising the tales we have been telling in which labor and land are mere abstractions, cultural genocide or repressed memory, might not only lead us in the direction of true reparation, but also invest the tales we've heard and those we might tell in the future with more justice and perdurable significance. Okay, so nine years ago, almost to the day, I gave a Gorman series lecture on Oaksmith's life and work at the Yarmouth History Center. For any of you who perhaps did not attend or take good notes, my argument was basically that if we are to understand the life and work of Elizabeth Oaksmith or perhaps any other figure in our cultural history, we have to stop telling tales about it. That specifically, while, quote, her autobiography, written very late in life, was for decades one of the only major sources critics could rely on, the practice of translating the tone and tenor of that work across work in all periods of Oaksmith's career had set us, even from the outset of her recovery, off course, unquote. Using evidence from her letters to her husband, working then in Boston in 1833, and her memoir on the climb and her climb of Mount Katahdin in 1849, along with material evidence found at the ledge over in Yarmouth, gravestones with dates carved on them, literal rocks in place in Thoreau's terms I began with. I argued how reading her powerful story entitled The Defeated Life as mere autobiography compromised any full understanding of her work's complexity and the complexity of her life, which was hardly defeated when that story appeared in 1847. 
Toward the end of my talk, I called for, quote, an entirely different approach to the recovery of Oaksmith's life and work, one that builds arguments on the material basis of her life and her growth as a writer, quote, unquote, not one that builds on tales of her disappearance or the unhistoricized tone of her defeat. If unlike the original inhabitants of this place, our culture has little relationship to the land, we still need as solid a foundation as we can find to build on. And in these past 10 years, I've continued, or nine years, I've continued my search for that in Oaksmith's case, continuing to nudge those still using the tale of her autobiography in an unguarded fashion toward more solid grounds. After that talk nine years ago, David Little, the author of a beautiful book called Art of Katahdin, came up to the lectern and asked me when he could expect Oaksmith's full biography. And I told him I wasn't anywhere near ready to write it, especially in the terms I'd set out that night. I'd found a few rocks, perhaps, but they weren't nearly enough for a foundation, or what Thoreau describes metaphorically as something to set a lamppost on. And this is David. Well then, how about the greatest hits? An anthology of her work, with headnotes framing each work just so more people might have access to more than the biography, uh, the autobiography, I agreed. I told him that, in fact, I'd been working on such a collection for many years. It's a good idea. We talked, about, we talked some about Katahdin. We said goodbye. I'm here again, I guess, because nine years later, David Little's idea has become a reality. And in the end, I think Mercer Press... Mercer University Press has fashioned it in a style that would please any artist's sensibility. Mercer rejected my original idea for an anthology, which would have run some 600 or more pages, far too expensive. But knowing his business well, press editor Mark Jolly suggested we simply break the work up into vol three volumes, each more affordable, and soon offer scholars not 600, but 900 pages of Hoke Smith's work edited and annotated. So when the pandemic led up last summer, and I was planning another trip to Katahdin last, uh, well, I was planning another trip to Katahdin, I invited David Little along to celebrate. Fortunately or unfortunately, he couldn't go. Before I get to what he missed out on, I think it might be worth explaining why it took me not nine, but really more than 30 years to get this book out. Mm -hmm. So we all might tell more than tales about the work of Elizabeth Oak Smith. When I meet someone writing on Oak Smith, I always ask them where they first saw her name. My first encounter with it is perhaps worth retelling at this point. Back in 1991, I was reading and writing about Rufus Griswold, the infamous editor that Edgar Allan Poe's family relied upon to write Poe's memoir after his death in 1849, but who turned around and infamously lied in it about Poe's personal and professional career. The story of Griswold and Poe was old by the time I got to it, with Griswold always painted as a sort of cartoon villain. In fact, I think historian Perry Miller compared him to a character out of Dickens, like Uriah Heep. But precisely because of such an exaggeration, I suspected the figure that had been cut for Griswold in literary history was one of those tales, or at least a very partial truth, and I went hunting for something less known about him in his collected papers at Boston Public Library. What I found there, over some months of reading, was that Griswold was no early feminist, but he was one of the first to recognize the lucrative market for poetry by women in the United States. Ironically, by taking advantage of a stable, 
of aspiring women poets, promising them recognition instead of cash for their work, and then pocketing the difference, Griswold inadvertently created a new demand for women's voices in American culture and provided a way for those voices to be heard more widely than they had ever been. As I remark in the introduction to Oaksmith's long poem, The Sinless Child, in this first volume of the Selected Writings, Elizabeth Oaksmith was one of the women Griswold took advantage of, and who in turn took advantage of Griswold. In the letters, that is Griswold's letters, I found Griswold had asked his friend Charles Fenno Hoffman his opinion about poets and poetry that he should include in one of his many anthologies. Hoffman's reply was unequivocal, and to me, downright strange. Pretty hard to read, too. While I'd read plenty of work on American women writers, I'd never heard the slightest mention of Oaksmith's name, but Hoffman sure had. Quote, I believe Mrs. Oaksmith stands head and shoulders above most of the female talent in our city, he wrote. The only question is whether her constitution be strong enough for the necessary mechanical labor of triumphant authorship, unquote. I chalked the mystery up here to my inexperience, since I was lucky enough to be studying with some of the leading critics in the ongoing recovery of women writers in the United States, well, certainly they'd be able to fill me in. But none of them, I discovered, had tales of her to tell at all. Who was this Mrs. Smith, who supposedly stood head and shoulders above all the other women writers at the time, but was now virtually unknown, even by experts in the field? Encouraged by my success in discovering more complexity in Rufus Griswold in the manuscripts he'd left behind, I wondered if I might find an archive containing records of Mrs. Smith, as I still referred to her. By this point, I'd moved to Evanston, Illinois, so it was Northwestern University's main library I ventured into to ask the reference librarian for the National Union Catalog of Manuscript Collections, perhaps without too much hope of finding anything Biased by the expert's lack of knowledge of or interest in her career, along with the insignificance of Oaksmith's tiny paragraph-long entry I found in the Dictionary of Literary Biography, I feared I'd run across a minor figure, a, a literary historical dead end. But indeed, the name Elizabeth Oaks Prince Smith was there in the catalog of manuscripts, and next to her name were several abbreviations, U-V-A-N-Y-P-L-H, University of Virginia, North New York Public Library, Harvard University Library, the index told me. Few others, HSP, JHL. The details didn't seem promising. Good-sized collections like Griswold's at the Boston Public Library had been accompanied by large numbers, meaning number of actual documents, adjacent to these library abbreviations. Next to Elizabeth Oaksmith's UVA, I only found a five with an F next to it. I sought out the reference librarian for an explanation. What does 5F stand for? Does F indicate a folder of manuscripts? No feet, she re responded. To ears expecting little or nothing, the word made no sense. What do you mean, feet? Not poetic feet, I asked. Exasperated with my naivete, the woman spread her arms as wide as they would go and repeated, feet, as in the manuscript collection takes up Five feet of shell space. I looked down again at the catalog and now noticed 3F next to the NYPL entry. How many pages of manuscript can you fit in eight feet of shell space, I asked the librarian. Thousands, maybe, she said, but you can never really tell until you see the archive. 
Those were only two of dozens of archives holding Oaksmith's papers. In professional terms, it seems I could not have been luckier as a graduate student. Whoever this Elizabeth Oaksmith was, the volume of evidence I'd happened upon had to provide a uniquely full record of a 19th century woman's life, at least, at best, a research agenda that would, leave, would last my entire career. But in this, I found I was mistaken. There was far more than that, I discovered, when I traveled to these archives and many more. This and no mistake. Two volumes of published poetry and countless uncollected poems preserved in scrapbooks. Seven published novels and three more nearly complete in manuscript. Two published plays and a third in manuscript. Three major treatises on women's rights, women's dress, and spiritualism. Eight lyceum lectures and a handful of others for women's rights conventions and other public occasions, including reminiscences of a relation to Ralph Waldo Emerson. And this is very impressionistic, this whole sort of array here. A book of sermons from her stint as a pastor in, whoops, sorry, in um, Canastota, New York uh, in the 1870s. Hundreds of pages of editorial collected in assorted scrapbooks. Thousands of pages of diary and journal entries, thousands more of correspondence from the 1830s into the 1890s, and, 600, and a 600-page unpublished autobiography, all clearly more than any one scholar might fairly ground with rocks in place in a career, even afforded the research time. As a young scholar, I was admittedly in a rush, culling what I could from my first visits to the Oaksmith Papers at the University of Virginia and the full manuscript of the autobiography, um, you know, I was thinking I'd done so much better than to rely on Mary Alice Wyman's selections from the autobiography published in 1927. I was using the original. So I finished my dissertation with an Oaksmith chapter and then published my first article on her with Cameron Nichols in a 1994 Franco-American collection of essays on American feminist thought. I won't disown that work, but I can see now that at that point I was just telling tales boldly proceeding with the same ahistorical, immaterial approach I would later trash in my Yarmouth paper in 2014. I had not read enough, certainly, but more important, I hadn't allowed the pages I read in the archive their voice. I hope you're thinking back to the Native American context in which I started. I had not allowed them their voice, a voice that resisted the tale called American literary history that had refused to include it. Further, I saw nothing behind that of the reasons it had refused. Thoreau's later thinking on Native American artifacts is relevant here. Duncan Caldwell and more recently Ross Martin have reminded us how in his later journals Thoreau began to refer to arrowheads, which he had been collecting all his life, to, quote, fossil thoughts, forever reminding me of the mind that shaped them, unquote. Not in the sense of appropriating that mind, but in the sense of dis it's disrupting his own sense of knowing. There is a new humility to this practice, Caldwell shows, where if finding an arrowhead reminds the settler of the raw fact that someone has preceded him, these experiences become not grist for the story mill, but what Caldwell calls story nuggets, which resist telling their tales. Thus, as I have entered and re-entered the archives containing Oaksmith's writing over the past 30 years and more, I've come to realize that what we have here to do justice to in Thoreau's terms is one tremendous pile of arrowheads. 
none of which simply tell their tales, but rather demand that we build something more of them that acknowledges their perdurability, their resistance to appropriation, and yet still ties their obscurity to a material basis. The triangulating references on neither, nearly every page of this volume that I know in some cases threaten to overwhelm the main text are intended not merely to represent the footnotes of a book formatted in Chicago style, but footings at the base of that sort of building. And I call my editor's note here an invitation, both to invite the reader to build on the rocks I have tried to fix in place here and to point back more generally to how our cultural history might be re-envisioned. Of course, even if the goal of presenting these volumes to readers is certainly to provide something more than a tale for scholars to build on as they research and write about Oak Smith, as I show in this first volume, the difficulty of physically accessing that full range of variety that mentioned in the long catalog of its archival contents is only one difficulty that has had us settle for telling tales about her. I have time here to briefly mention some others. The first that I discuss in headnotes to all but the first and last sections of this volume is her emergence as a strictly professional woman writer. Much has been made, for example, of the fact that Oaksmith became the family breadwinner in New York after her husband's failed investments forced her into the literary marketplace. But very few have investigated in the correspondence she left behind the particular strategies she and her publishers used to access and then maintain a demand for her work. Elsewhere, I have demonstrated the way one of her publishers decided to falsely advertise the unpopular feminist and anti-colonial themes of her second novel, entitled The Western Captive, with a V, in 1842, promising instead a thrilling account of a captain who appears nowhere in that work. What has not been sufficiently acknowledged is that at that time, Oaksmith was aware of such strategies. And behind them, as she recalled, quote, enjoyed all the benefits of authorship without its penalties, unquote. Not ready to have her life taken for a while, as she put it to Griswold in the early 40s, she would allow male editors and publishers to arrange for her image in the marketplace, thus displacing the material facts of her labor with a tale fashioned by the publishing industry and its economic imperatives. It's a letter to Lydia Sigourney after her experiences of climbing Mount Katahdin in 1849 that warns us of the difference between the woman and her image most clearly. Quote, nothing of what I have felt, Oaksmith declares, nothing of my real self, my whole self, has appeared in my writings. 1849. So providing ed editors the images of femininity and morality expected of women writers ensured Oaksmith's name rose quickly to the top of any number of advertisements listing the contributors of both established and emerging magazines. And for that, the selection of poetry and tales in volume one of the selected works likely represents mostly her creativity in adapting her purposes to the popular styles and themes of her white male heteronormative culture. It's actually in volume two of the selected works, dedicated to Oaksmith's feminist writings and activism, where her own purposes, her own selfhood, emerge more directly in her writing. And it's a familiarity with Oaksmith's work in the feminist movement that provides grounds for our reading more radical subtexts in her poetry and fiction of the 1840s. 
reading with a modern feminist consciousness, we might find a black female entrepreneur, a cross-dressing spiritual leader, a woman betrayed into marriage who shrieks the truth at her guilty mother before she dies. But were such figures from Oaksmith's work in the 1840s visible, much less acceptable to an audience who was far from receptive to Oaksmith's and others' claims for women's rights in the 1850s? Evidence shows that so often were her intentions at odds with what would engage her audience that her titles told tales that increasingly belied the contents of her work. In an essay called The Sentiment of Self-Sacrifice, Oaksmith asks why women should sacrifice their sense of selfhood. The theme of virtue rewarded is that virtue hardly ever is. Woman the Inferior ends up being a lecture about men's construction of women as inferior, when in fact, the fact is quite the opposite. And of course, how to tell a story, the example of Oaksmith's humorous vein in volume one, where a young girl listens to a story of how her neighbor killed a mountain lion, is about how not to tell a story about killing a mountain lion. There are countless examples of this strategy where Oaksmith pulls readers or lecture audiences in by their prejudices, only to undermine and overturn those prejudices in what follows. And one might surmise modern critics who did not perceive this strategy, that is, did not read past the tales told in Oaksmith's titles, might well have judged her work too conservative to merit recovery. But if in volume one, Oaksmith's poetry and fiction are marked by the market, their intentions complicated and disguised by all that mud and slush of opinion and prejudice and tradition and delusion Thoreau was railing at in his passage from Walden I began with, I included the bookends of volume one, Oaksmith's letters to her husband and her account of her climb of Katahdin as texts that resist the tales Oaksmith so often found she needed to tell. Some have argued that a young woman's letters to her husband in Oaksmith's position have to be considered a kind of performance, merely mimicking veritable emotion or desire. But I see in Oaksmith's half of the couple's loving, mutual, respectful correspondence a wonderful material resistance to psychological theory. Oh, this is obviously Stockholm Syndrome. Or the insistence that Oaksmith's later critique of early marriage discounts the possibility that she was ever fulfilled in that relation. That Oaksmith was undoubtedly unhappy in the same marriage years on testifies only to her agreement with Emerson that the marriage relation is often only one phase of a person's adult life. We will have firmer grounds for our understanding of Oaksmith's early development as a woman and as a writer when the myriad references of these letters are pursued to the lives, places, and events still unidentified in them, even by me. As Adam Tuchinsky and Becky Jaroff have noted, Oaksmith's narrative about Katahdin is important for the tale we tell of her, precisely for the way it places her work in relation to Thoreau, who more famously wrote about his venture to Katahdin and whose solidity in our cultural memory works something like a rock to build on. In past years, I've made sure, for the same reason, to present papers on Oaksmith's life and work in light of figures like Nathaniel Hawthorne and Margaret Fuller and Catherine Maria Sedgwick. But most significantly, not only does the absence of any mention of Oaksmith's Katahdin adventure represent the most egregious silence in that tale mistakenly equated with her life, that's her autobiography, it takes place precisely at this crucial turning point of her career, 
from the woman telling tales to achieve a national reputation as one of the New York literati to one daring to defend her rights and those of her sex, frankly, in print, then bodily in a lecture career that lasted seven years. Indeed, to me, the material bodily experience of her adventure to Katahdin seems to be an identifiable basis or a rock in place that underlies that pivotal change in her career. Most fascinating of all, the experience leading to this change seems recoverable, almost literally, given the comparatively successful preservation of the landscape at Katahdin, despite the incursions of tourism and industry from Oaksmith's time to our own. Given the graphic nature of her memoir and the possibility of drawing the attention of a generation raised on video, I began a film project on her journey, Pache Thoreau, enlisting as a guide, Susan Adams, based at Lungsu's camp, Katahdin Woods and Waters Preserve, and John Neff, historian of the mountain, to help us identify the trail blazed by Marcus Keep that Oaksmith and her party followed to Pamola, Katahdin's lowest peak. By 2017, I had traipsed after Oaksmith from Portland all the way to Beaufort, North Carolina, from Patchogue, Long Island, to the Valley of the Ramapaw. But in all those places, I'd had to imagine the details of her material life and experience. On this project, I would nearly walk in her footsteps. So the next summer, we were guided by Susan Adams from the site of Hunt's farm and, uh, on the east branch of the Penobscot River, where 19th century, 19th century travelers had enjoyed their last indoor comforts before venturing into the wilderness, all the way to Avalanche Brook. Along the way, there's Avalanche Brook. Along the way, we congratulated ourselves as we located the direct descendants of the woodland ferns, the Solomon seal, the pitcher plants Oaksmith described on her path between Rocky Pond and Katahdin Lake. The next summer, with Susan's colleague Connie Barnes, we climbed to Pomola on the Halon Taylor Trail, marked here in blue, following the steps of Oaksmith Center Party only at the very end along Keep Ridge, where somewhere Oaksmith and her friend Nancy Mosman had left their sassy note in a bottle for pioneer Marcus Keep and his wife to find on their way to the summit the following week. But the weather then had been fine, the trail solid and well marked, and we had little time for me to venture down the avalanche slide a few hundred feet to know what Oaksmith's scramble up that sand and rock might have been like. As many hikers do, we ran out of time, leaving for the following year the segment of Oaksmith's journey marked here in purple that was no trail at all, but rather a hike up Avalanche Brook itself and then a true scramble of the east slide. I had a sense this most challenging and wild segment of the journey, journey and its overcoming might be the material source of that ebullient tone I'd already highlighted in my head note of that section in volume one. Now I needed to do it and make sure my reading of her Katahdin memoir was grounded in something solid. The summers of 2020 and 2021 were lost to pandemic. My publisher's deadline for volume one was set for May before the park even opened in 2022. So I had to publish without the benefit of the experience I'm about to share with you. I called Susan Adams again but she was too busy for another Oaksmith adventure and several other guides I called would have nothing to do with leading a hiker off trail. The current park director had heard of my film project from previous years and provided another permit, but this time insisted on not one but two guides for me on, in the event of any mishap, 
one to stay with the injured, another to go for help. After several referrals, I was delighted to find two women again for the job, this time Jessica Lucarelli and Tali Martin at Great Mountain Guides. Incapable of dropping the professorial habit, I sent them Oaksmith's narrative to read for homework. I'd never seen hotter weather in the area than I did on my first two days at my campsite. In fact, at that point, a three-mile slog up a cold stream seemed like a fine prospect. But on the morning of our meeting at Avalanche Brook, the chance of rain stood at a seriously determined 100%, and the temperature dropped into the 50s. By the time I pulled my vehicle alongside my guides off the road, what had started as a light rain had turned to a steady, cold downpour. It was a daunting start. But I smiled to Oaksmith across time as the women took absolute control of the situation, warm or cold, rain or no rain, laying down the rules of the hike, eyeing with apparent condescension, my little pack already filled with camera equipment and dry socks, a pair of hiking boots to change in for the slide, some snacks. Jessica adjusted the straps on my pack to accommodate more calories. A fat submarine sandwich, fruit, some Slim Jims, bars. My protest was peremptorily ended with her simple and direct, believe me, you're going to need it. It was at this point in her, in, our, in her journey that it had already started to rain on Oaksmith's party as well. So when our first steps into the rushing stream promised a long day of cold and wet, I rationalized that the turn in the weather had provided an opportunity to experience and even record a fair facsimile of what Oaksmith had gone through. Here she is. And now our way led not by the side of the torrent, but directly up its bed, she'd recorded. The trees were so thick and low upon each side and the ground so irregular and cumbered with fragments from the mountain that ascent was impossible any other way, unquote. <laughs> My guides begged to differ on that point, soon began scratching their way through the low pines, maple and scrub, which opened occasionally in the track of a moose. But I struck intrepidly to the rocks and the rushing water, where in no less than 20 minutes, the advantage I expected from the technology of modern outerwear disappeared, and I was soaked through from above and below. Eventually, I traded this authentic keep-style mode of travel in the brook for one more efficient, though equally miserable, slogging after my guides on whichever bank we found any kind of opening. After an hour or so, I began to guess that not only was Oaksmith at 43, just physically stronger than I was at 59, but her emotional response to the exertion had more to do with a freedom she could appreciate, and that I, as a privileged male of the 21st century, had been taught to take for granted. Here she again. Here's, here she is again. It was a merry sight to see us leaping from rock to rock, springing over these surging and roaring cataracts for three long miles, and truth to say, it grew to be no holiday task, for ankles will be ankles in spite of resolution, but when our spirits flagged, a look upward at the sportful nymph above sent new beauty into our souls, that we clapped our hands and sang and called to the mountain echoes as if we had become part of this exulting, jubilant, oh, one hour, of life like this is worth an eternity amid the dust and dullness of cities. <laughs> no holiday task indeed. Well, more tangibly, her observation that at length the brook diverged seemed to assure us that we were on the right track. And as we followed the branch of the river toward the ridge, the stream bed rose sharply, as Oaksmith had described. Still, a glance at Tolly's Garmin was worrisome. 
Avalanche Brook offered us so many choices when viewed from above, it was impossible to tell if we had chosen correctly. The remoteness of our place in the wilderness became more clear as moose droppings in our path yielded to bear scat, much of it fresh in patches of ripe blueberries. And a long-tailed wood mouse, we scared up a tree, returned to the ground at our feet, stood her ground, and stared right up at our faces. Had the mouse ever seen a person? Whenever the rain let up, some uh, let up a bit, we'd gathered together to eat and drink. But now, after several hours of work in the cold rain, stopping brought on a case of the shivers. So we tried to keep moving. The early signs of hypothermia I did not know, but my footing grew less sure over slippery rocks, at one point soaking me to the waist in a deep hole, and I recalled a trail marathon where potassium depletion had affected my proprioception so badly I'd begun tripping over every single rock and root. It was becoming clear we'd taken the wrong fork in the road, in, in the brook. Instead of opening into the meadow, we expected below uh, the slide. The stream bed led us into a thick grove of trees at the end of the yellow line here that was finally impassable. Doubling back to the main branch and trying another fork promised no surer path, ultimately, and the steeper pitch up the stream bed had slowed our pace and sapped our energy. Time in the rain was not our friend. I hardly needed convincing that it was time to change into whatever dry things we still had to wear and turn around. The hiking shoes I'd brought to climb the slide never left my pack. Yes, there had been rocks in place here, but they were slippery. With a wink to her friend Nancy, had Oaksmith told those who might follow her a tale about her journey, as if to say, well, that was fun. Didn't you think so? <laughs> Returning soaked and cold to the gravel road, I wonder if I had fallen for it, as many fell for her misleading titles, or how some might have expected to actually hear the story of the mountain lion told in the squib she called How to Tell a Story. So many times reading her work, even reading her diary, we were led to ask, but why would she lie? Indeed, why would I? The better question is likely, well, what are we missing? Well, there is one missing thing here, and for that I need to recall what happened the previous day. So planning my trip in a rush that July for the beginning of August, the only reservation I could find was a campsite at Niswatahunk Field, about 45 minutes drive around the South Gate and back up Roaring Brook Road to where I'd meet my guide the following day. Not ideal, but desperate to make this trip happen, I took it. The GoPro video camera I'd rented was a complex affair, controlled via Bluetooth from my phone, so thinking of a rehearsal, I thought I'd take an easy hike from Avalanche Brook parking lot out to Katahdin Lake. That's the other way. Try it out. I'd pick up a sandwich at the general store near River Driver's Restaurant along the way. Our filming party had walked this easy trail on our last trip, so I didn't think much of it. It was about 90 degrees and humid that day, so I looked forward to wading in the lake for lunch. I made it out there, and that's just what I did. I had a nice conversation with a young man who'd lived there at the end of the trail on the lakeshore as a, year bo as a young boy. My experiment with the camera was a success. I put both GoPro and cell phone back in my pack with the trash from lunch and started the three miles back to the car. About half a mile in, fully absorbed in the thoughts of the following day, the challenging scramble up the slide I wasn't very uh, much looking forward to, I was startled by a snake, perhaps three feet long 
crossing the path at my feet. I stopped to grab my smartphone from my pack, but the snake disappeared as quickly as it came. I thought immediately of the lines from Oaksmith's narrative, quote, how we overcame our womanly horror of snakes, I know not, she wrote. But so it was, and we would travel on as demurely in this rough, untidy road as if we had never known the luxury of the green earth or the comfort of cleanly sidewalks. The truth is, and the truth must be told, we were not blessed with a sight of a single huge or terrible animal, did not come upon the dignity even of a snake. Sad not to have had my camera ready. I started off again, lost in thought and concentration, looking down at the trail now for those were roots and rocks, perhaps more snakes. And I recalled Oaksmith mentioning saucy squirrels, of a lizard, loons, an eagle. Oaksmith always seemed to spot an eagle. And then, yes, there'd been that bear she thought she heard crashing through the trees and the cry of the moose at night. Forest sounds, yeah. <laughs> now I recalled her praise of her guide, Jim Haynes, who, quote, perfect in all woodland experience, also sang a good song, and then I smiled, realizing only right then, <laughs> the reason Oaksmith never encountered anything larger than a squirrel is because Haynes's voice had alerted the larger animals to their presence. I noted absently that the trail had leveled off, the rocks underfoot giving way to a smoother path of soft earth among the ferns and low-growing chokeberry. No longer in danger of tripping anyway, I quickened my pace and casting my gaze now forward on the trail, about a hundred feet away, over the tops of the fern, backlit in the western sun, I saw the long, fluffy tail of a full-grown mountain lion. He'd seen me first, turned, and disappeared into the young maple and pine, perhaps deciding that all the bug spray I was wearing was unappetizing or that I wasn't worth the effort that afternoon. It happened as quickly as I've described it here. It was a rare moment, I heard later, for any hiker and a singular one for me, this and no mistake. The two Penobscot I told about it a few days later could not stop saying how lucky I was. I didn't pretend to understand, much less share their perspective, and I will not now. All I could blurt out was, well, it wouldn't have been lucky if I'd been torn apart by an animal in a place so remote my body wouldn't have been found for weeks, if ever. Oh, there are much worse ways of dying than being killed by a mountain lion, one replied. Maybe Thoreau would help me understand that, saying, be it life or death, we crave only reality. In the moment, it took some time for the adrenaline to subside and get my feet moving again. Honestly, the immediate impression was how stunningly beautiful, how surprisingly fluffy and bright the animal's tail had been, shining in the sunlight. Feeling a mild breeze on my face, my instinct was, sadly, to make sense of the encounter. I'd been walking silently, completely lost in thought, on soft ground. With the wind in my direction, I had been accidentally stealthy. And from there, the unrealized repercussions came to mind as well. Knowing this easy trail well, I had not even thought to sign the register back at the road. If I had been reported lost, the search would have begun at my campsite miles away in Swadonhunk Field, the only place park officials would know to look for me. But like Oaksmith, I was not to perish upon the Katahdin. But you better believe all the way back to the car, I sung out to the forest as lustily as her guide Jim Haynes had to keep his party's path clear of large predators in 1849. So now we're past the end of my story this evening. This is the tale. 
Perhaps the visual will help. My route back to camp took me around the south entrance to the park. Instead of making the hairpin, I pulled over to the ranger station there to share the most visceral brush with reality I'd probably ever had. But I don't think I got to the second half of that compound noun mountain lion before the ranger cut in definitively, there are no mountain lions in the state of Maine. My experience to him was but a tale told and probably by an inexperienced hiker. Granted, after this seemingly rehearsed response, there was a discussion of what the animal looked like and my description of the tail did the telling. Weren't no bobcat. Perhaps in an off-the-record tone, I even got his admission of a possible sighting some days ago over on Double Top Mountain, but that was between us. The park had delivered its message as officially required, and the following day, if they'd been with us on our cold slog up Avalanche Brook, Baxter officials would have been proud to hear my guides repeat this denial adamantly, and they don't believe it to this day. This tale of the story is more than allegorical, although it's true, perhaps, just as the authorities at the park have denied the presence of mountain lions, authorities in literary history have to this point denied Oaksmith's existence, or like a mountain lion perhaps considered her too much of a nuisance to publicize. It is gratifying to see Adam Tuchinsky's essay on Oaksmith's Katahdin adventure receive recognition by the Maine Historical Society for the best essay in its journal this year, and for the society to have invited an Oaksmith scholar to speak to you this evening. Looking around this building, you may see the appropriate vent. You may not see the appropriate venue for telling stories about mountain lions, according to the narrator of how to tell a story in this book. Rather, you see an institution, and for it to recognize Oaksmith and her friend Nancy Mosman in these ways is a significant step toward their return to history. But what would be even better? What would associate Oaksmith with something even more permanent, that rock in place the natives called Katahdin, what Thoreau would describe as this and no mistake, would be a different response by park rangers to future hikers who run into mountain lions in the Baxter Park. They might begin, there are no mountain lions in the state of Maine, but then continue. But there was this woman from Portland who wrote a funny story about one in 1849, and she became the first white woman to climb this mountain. That experience gave her such confidence in herself and her capability that she decided to stop just writing stories and start lecturing to people across the country about the capabilities and capacities of all women. You ought to read about her. Her name's Elizabeth Oak Smith. Thanks. Great. <laughs> it took me a long time to find that. Yes. Question. I have been instructed to repeat your question for the microphone. Yes. Okay. Um, I think most of us here have probably seen Adam Chinsky's article. Yeah. Which I thought was interesting enough that I went and read the original. And, nice. You know, your Oaksmith Society has stuff online so you can access it easily. And the question I have for you is a question I have tired. Yes, so good. Thank you. Hiking upstream uh, to the wilderness. Do you get any insight? Right, right. I wish I could repeat all of your question. You're asking it so beautifully, but I have to make sure the podcast hears it. But the question is that of attire that that in the 19th century women did not have a, 
appropriate climbing attire or it wasn't common. And in fact, if you go to the Patton uh, Lumberman's Museum and look at the pictures of the lumber camps where the women would you know, be sitting there cooking or whatever, they have long dresses on. And so you're like, yeah, I guess they did wear those out there. Um, so I discussed this a little bit in the book. Um, uh, the, the, uh, Oaksmith, as I said, wrote one of her treatises on reform, the dress reform. And she was um, roundly uh, laughed at for this. Uh, it was a very popular thing to jeer at. And she was lampooned in cartoons in newspapers. Um, but in her treatise called Hints on Dress and Beauty, I mean, think about how she approached it. She didn't say, you know, here's, here's the bloomer costume, wear it. Hints on Dress and Beauty. You know, she made it sound so genteel, right? But uh, I think third or fourth chapter in, and this is in volume two, uh, that's, that's actually in the process. It's going to come out in January, this January. Um, she describes probably what she was wearing. It's really fascinating. Uh, this is 1852, so it's fresh in mind. And she says, let us have, and she describes every accoutrement of uh, her, her um, costume. And it is. It's a pair of pants with, with a, a long skirt and pockets. So women were <laughs> so frustrated they didn't have pockets. And uh, she goes through the detail of you know, boots that you could just pull on and not have to lace so meticulously. And, and what I've had, I've done, and I haven't used it in the book, but I have asked uh, one of my, uh, my colleagues, art students, given this description, please draw it. As a matter of fact, we had a contest. And, and we got three entries, and, and uh, I, I picked the, the um, I don't know, sort of the most likely one that sort of rang true to her description. And uh, it was going to be in the film, but the film kind of died with the pandemic, or at least was put on hold for the pandemic. But you're right. It's, it's amazing. Anybody who's been to Katahdin realizes that to do this in a dress, I just don't know how you would ever do it. I mean, you would have had to literally, and it's impossible. Um, Stan Tagg, he's a university professor at Western Washington. Um, let me just get to that. He took that picture. That is a picture from Avalanche Brook. He made it. He got there. But realize that John Neff, historian of the mountain, and you know somebody who's hiked Katahdin, I don't know, for eight, 70 years or 80 years, I think he's still alive, um, has never been this way. The... the um, this does it to everybody. It's extraordinarily difficult to find the right turns as you, you're in such dense brush, you can't see the ridge. So you really don't know exactly when to head in. And uh, we headed in, as, as you saw in the other diagram, we headed in way early. But um, oh, how did I get on that? Anyway, uh, thank you for that question. It's a great question about her dress. And, and oh yes, you couldn't possibly just stay in the river and if you did address, it would be impossible to navigate. So she, she had to have pants on um, of some kind, uh, trousers as she would have called it. Um, they weren't bloomers, like sort of tied at the bottom, I don't believe. That's not the way she describes them in her book. Other questions? It's a great question. Yeah? Do you know much about her relationship with John Neal, also of Portland, Maine? Yeah. Yeah, well, she, he was an inspiration to her, I know. Um, in the book, I talk about John Neal as someone who didn't embarrass her, but was incredibly frank about, 
first her relationship with her husband and how much work she did, which embarrassed her husband, um, made him look sort of um, um, ineffective. <laughs> um, and he even um, joked that perhaps his invention of Major Downing was a mutual invention, that she had a hand in it. That's how far she went to compliment her. He really thought the world of her. Um, what you might know, of course, is from our earlier discussion is that uh, Oaksmith's son and his son were both involved in the Walker expedition and his son died. And he stayed at home. He was in New York, as, you know, safe in New York doing the business part of it, raising money for the guy. He went and died. Both of them um, were caught up in something. Um, they were certainly, both of them admitted in the letters of the 1850s that are in the collection of Brown Library. Um, both of them sort of go back and forth about this awful event of his son's death, about um, they're being deluded by Walt Walker. In other words, so it wasn't as if like they were cheering for Walker to win um, and, and wished that Walker would come back or something like that. They realized, oh my gosh, this is not about freedom. This is about slavery. So yeah. The other thing about Neil, of course, is, is um, um, Bill Barry's wonderful article that I learned about Neil. When he opened the um, gymnasium in Portland in the 20s um, and allowed an African-American man to join and people were all up in arms. He said, I, if you can't take it, you can't have my gym. <laughs> that said a lot to me. And I don't know, this, the, the rest of Barry's work on Neil is really amusing, I thought. Um, but yeah, uh, they corresponded, you know, until the end of Neil's life. And she wrote a long section in the autobiography. The autobiography is largely kind of, um, it's not name dropping, but it's certainly, it was used that way. In other words, it, by the 1860s, she just couldn't, she couldn't give her work away practically. And she had a few friends who, Baldwin's Monthly, for example, would, would accept her work. And, and the way that you know, publishers would overcome her reputation at that time was that she was writing about her relationship with a famous other person. Uh, her recollections with Emerson and Fuller and Neil and all these people you know, were these sections that she plunked into her autobiography. And so I just, I don't, I don't value the autobiography because of that. It's just not, it's not really about her. And it's certainly not about the rest of her life. It's very much about a woman who has been beaten. And so I just think it's, it's no wonder if, if, if you go to the autobiography and you read that, no wonder you don't want to research Oak Smith. I mean, I, she's, she's depressed. She's, she's a downer. I mean, you know, she's, um, she seems you know, conceited at the same time as she's, you know, it's awful. <laughs> so so I, I, I'm not a great fan, but I did use it recently, very poignantly, uh, referring to the, the autobiography. She finished writing probably in the early 90s, like 1890. Most of it was written in 1881, 1885. But she kept going at it. But I'd say even after that, because in 1889, she published a reminiscence of Margaret Fuller, and she had time in a document that I found in the archives to take that printed document from the phrenological journal and scribble over it and correct it. So that must have been like, you know, at least 
after 1889, after mid-1889. So she was still thinking about Margaret Fuller at the very end of her life. And she was thinking about, you know, opportunities lost. I mean, Fuller having a career cut short. And I think she identified with having her career cut short, in a sense, with the debacle with Appleton and all that. Uh, when you say that uh, John Neal was saying things about... Oh, yeah. Right. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, and then the trouble was they weren't just printed once; they were printed twice. The people who um, John Keyes, a publisher here in Portland, uh, who who uh, put together her first book of poetry, um, and just scrambled together what he could to get it out because people were asking in his bookshop. You know, I've seen this. Sinless Child poem, did she write a book? Can I get a book? And she's, he's like, uh, yeah, okay, and I'll, I'll make a book. And he put it together, and he grabbed what had been written about her from Henry Tuckerman, John Neal, Rufus Grizzle, not Rufus Grizzle, a couple other people, and, and just put it into the preface and his own preface. And so Neal's, <laughs> Neal's uh, uncomplimentary comments about Seba got printed twice, at least, and uh, she was a little bit embarrassed by it. It's really funny. Other questions? Yeah. I wonder if you pull up anything um, suggesting that she was at the 1834 lecture that Celeste Brand gave in Portland. I read a reference that maybe some of her... Uh, I don't know why she wouldn't be. Sylvester Graham, wow. Right, that some of her women's rights activism mm -hmm. ties yeah, yeah. It could have been. I mean, I know that she heard John Neal speak on the subject, but Sylvester Graham, I'm not I'm embarrassed not to be familiar with. Sylvester Graham. Sylvester Graham, so he, he's the one that Graham Tech was named after. No, okay. Oh. A big celebrity back in the okay. era. I, I, I need to learn things, okay. And, uh, <laughs> Thank you. Interesting. In in thirty four, she she and her husband were still very active Portlanders, and I guarantee that they, they well very likely that they would have attended something like that. And uh, um, they they attended um, Jackson's lectures on geology and were interested in uh, the late letters. Um, so there's two sets of letters here, one from that moment about six weeks they were apart from in 1833, and then there's this other really interesting moment in 1836 and seven when uh, Seba had invested in these northern lands. And um, Oaksmith is reporting back to the lectures she's going to and reporting them in detail and bringing her sons with her. So they were, I mean, these lectures, that was, that was school. I mean, that was the university that you know, they could go to that those who didn't go to university. That was uh, useful knowledge. So Sylvester's lecture would have absolutely been part of her. I mean, Sylvester Graham's lecture would have been something like that. Where did it occur? Do you remember? So it took place at the Temple Street Chapel. Yeah. No. Yeah. I've certainly read that um, in their in their letters or in references to that. Yeah. So um, I have to learn more about Graham. That's great. And w so he would have been lecturing in the fifties. 
in 34, but you said that he lectured, because Oaksmith was not out as a feminist at all in the 1830s, although she, when she got to New York, she did attend uh, Francis Wright's lecture, um, she says, days after they had arrived. This, this, you know. So I think these people were you know, public intellectuals. They, you know, somebody's lecturing on a topic like that, I think you could count on them as attendees. You can see yourselves in them. <laughs> Anyone else with a question? Anything else strike your... Any other questions about the hike? <laughs> yes, I was scared. <laughs> but I, and not, probably it happened too quickly to really feel that. Yeah. Just help us out. What was the debacle you alluded to a little while ago? Hmm. Debacle with Appleton? Uh, yeah. Okay, so in uh, 1861 or two, uh, Appleton had... Um, failed in a lot of enterprises and um, was trying to get into another one and bought a boat for somebody. And somebody in the government, after Lincoln had lifted the right of habeas corpus, somebody in the government that disliked Appleton's political positions, incidentally, and this is, I just, I don't know the facts, but um, John White, in this book has supplied the facts to Appleton's career. I mean, this is, this is the best thing ever written on Appleton. This guy, John Topaski in the 1950s wrote an account of Appleton's life that White corrects in a number of ways that make you suspect that Topaski didn't have the archival material that White does. But Appleton was scooped up and Gordon had just been hanged uh, for his role in um, equipping a slave ship and actually being on a slave ship in Africa, being brought back and tried, convicted, and hung for slave dealing, which was this great blow struck against slavery. And Lincoln was lauded for riding it out and carrying out the sentence. So many people were, were arguing that he shouldn't. In the meantime, Appleton had been scooped up because he had bought a boat that somebody um, argued, without much evidence, wasn't right for whaling. He had hired a whaling captain. He had hiring, and that captain had hired whaling crews, and it wasn't even equipped yet. But they were ready to snap on anybody who bought any, bought any kind of boat at that moment, who was going to go on a voyage that wasn't sort of known. Appleton had this past that this gentleman mentions that he had been working for agents that were associated with the South and slavery. I think Appleton was an entrepreneur looking to make some money, um, wasn't, particularly, uh, wasn't particular enough about the friends he kept or the, the deals that he was asked to make. And he probably deserved where, what he got. But that was eight months in a prison, which I just visited, by the way. If you're ever in Boston... Um, and you, many of you will be, I'm sure. You guys get to Boston. Go to a restaurant called Clink. It's uh, right off of Beacon Street. And um, it's a wonderful restaurant, a little expensive, but it's the jail. And they have preserved the jail where Appleton was kept. It's the Suffolk County Jail uh, until 1990-something, and it was sort of just falling down between then and about 2007 or 10 or something like that. And they reconfigured it and made it into the most beautiful bar and restaurant you've ever seen. But the wall containing all of the 
iron doors is intact. And you can, and upstairs in the rooms in the hotel, the same walls are available. And you can be in Appleton's cell and eat dinner, which is where I ate dinner with his great-great-granddaughter two weeks ago. Um, it's really, I've never seen a, 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 a architectural preservation this effective. It is really quite something. Because a jail, this was a modern jail in 1850. It was a panopticon, it was round. And the hallways went in all directions so that the inmates could only be in a kind of corner and the guards had a view of everything. And it was, it's, it was brilliant. Uh, anyway, this, I, I will highly recommend this book as well as mine. Shipwrecked is, the, you know, the, the ethic of my paper is that we, we have to get evidence. And we have to triangulate evidence until we have a solid argument that really challenges being moved, <laughs> resists being moved. And until you have that, you're not done. And John works a lot faster than I do. Uh, he put this thing together in about, I don't know, six, seven years. But it was great research. Um, one more question? Anything that came up, came to mind as we... Uh, um, this book is available for sale online at $45. Uh, but I don't have any change, so if you got two 20s, I would be pleased to part with one at the front here. Uh, I hope that the museum will be carrying them soon, and there are two more coming out. Um, the, they're going to come out every spring, and so right now the uh, manuscript for volume two, which is her feminist work and activism, uh, including her lectures, uh, a sample of her lectures, both at women's rights conventions and the Lyceum Circuit, very different, are in there. Uh, Woman and Her Needs, her, her pioneer feminist treatise that really carried forward the work of Margaret Fuller is um, the, big, the big thing in this book. And then um, she wrote a lot of editorial for the New York Tribune and other things. The, what I'm most proud of is the, the work I've done to, to um, dig up the origin of the first feminist journal. Everybody knows that journal was called the Una, uh, but no, it wasn't. <laughs> it was called the Egeria. That was Oaksmith's idea. Right after she started lecturing, she started dealing with publishers to get this thing going and she convinced Paulina Wright Davis and Paulina Wright Davis writes letters talking about working for the Egeria. Paulina Wright Davis is on board and they're together and they attended, this is a funny story that if you didn't know you should, they attended the 1852 Syracuse Women's Rights Convention, the National Convention, in twin dresses, one pink, one blue and really like opera, right? Pearls, the whole deal. And they just wanted to mess with people's minds. Because when you thought women's rights, you thought of the woman's bloomer costume and something that was unfeminine and masculine and scary and awful. And they wanted to put that on its head. So they came all dressed to the nines. And uh, Susan B. Anthony looked at them. Couldn't say anything to Paulina Wright Davis because she was paying the bills. But she looked at Oaksmith, who was nominated as president, and says, that woman will not represent us, because she's a Quaker, and she's all black, buttoned up. And she's, nope. No. And Susan, Susan B. Anthony had never been to one of these before, but she was determining what they were going to do. So guess what? Lucretia Mott was put forward as the president, and Oaksmith became a 
very important figure, vice president, but you wasn't going to be president. But it's an interesting moment in uh, uh, that um, team between Paulina Wright Davis and Oaksmith. But when the, the magazine was about to appear, uh, I found you know, evidence that uh, Oaksmith had had a conversation with Paulina Wright Davis, and the conversation went like this. Well, if I join this movement and if I step out, I'm going to lose this entire thing. This is my ticket. This is my living. This is putting food on the table and a roof over my head. I am going to give that up, so I need a salary to replace it or to partially replace it. Besides, I have this reputation, and the reputation can be transferred to the women's rights movement. Pauline Wright Davis is basically saying, no, I, I'm not going to allow you to do no, I, I can't afford it, we can't afford it. And they split over that, and it became first um, the elucidator, and then it was renamed the Una. But it, that history is really interesting, and the documents that under, underlie that, that history of the development of the first women's rights journal in 1854, excuse me, three, uh, is in volume two. So look for volume two in, in January. The third volume is going to be um, some stuff from novels. It's going to be her longer work, and in that, I'm also going to be, I'm always going to publish in each one of these, um, each one of these volumes uh, something that has never seen the light of day before. That's not been published ever, even in Oak Smith's lifetime. And uh, I think I have a picture, real quick. I know this pretty well. See that thing on the um, on the left, <laughs> in the archives. How, how thrilling is it to find a novel? tied tightly that you know has not been opened since, I don't know, since Geraldine, her youngest granddaughter, sold these papers to the University of Virginia. And it was all tied up, and I untied it, and I took a picture of every darn page, and I've typed it out. I'm not going to publish the whole novel, but it's a really weird novel. Um, and I will definitely have some excerpts from it. So uh, thank you so much for your attention to this evening, and... Uh, I hope, uh, hope you'll continue thinking about and looking at, into Oak Smith. <laughs>